This podcast is sponsored by Oasis Aqua Lounge. Join our online community of sex-positive swingers and individuals looking to make connections while we are all stuck at home. We host events seven days a week and have hundreds of active members to meet and mingle with. Head to members.oasisaqualounge.com to join the party today. Hey everyone, and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Over the past six episodes with Lady Pym, the concept of research and data as it relates to sex work and sex trafficking came up repeatedly. So something I thought might be fun to do together would be to look at a few research papers and discuss them with an actual academic, experienced at reading actual academic papers. So I would like to introduce Alex Ufkis, a computer science professor and also my husband. Alex, do you want to say hello? Hey, I'm Alex. I am Ray's husband and a computer science professor at a major Toronto university. I really like how you said that you were my husband first, because that's clearly the most important part of your resume. That's the salient feature of my life, yes. Good, as it should be. (laughs) Okay, Alex, even though you're in computer science and not social sciences, why can we trust you on this topic? You can't trust me so much on the content of the paper, but as a computer scientist, I've, I've been through graduate school. I got my master's. I got halfway through a PhD before becoming completely fed up and disillusioned. As such, I know how to read an academic paper. I know what goes into producing a good academic paper. I understand the peer review process. I understand the citation process, the the publisher parish pipeline. So I I think I can provide some insight on that front here. And for everyone else who maybe isn't interested in the papers, he is a sexy professor with a sexy professor voice. So feel free to just objectify him if you're not interested in the content of what he's actually saying. Every class evaluation I go through, students are happy with me, but they point out that my voice is monotone. I'm going to do my best during the podcast to be entertaining and compelling to listen to. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. Okay, so I truly believe that couples should find an activity that they do together that keeps them together. So Alex and I do things like we'll watch a Netflix show together and we can't watch it apart like other regular couples and we rock climb together. But another thing that we've been doing since we started dating like what, like seven years ago is we will read articles and research papers and then talk about them at home. And what we noticed over time is that he and I often bring incredibly different perspectives. He's reading it for one purpose and I'm reading it for a completely different purpose. And then we would occasionally get into arguments where we realize we were arguing the same point from different perspectives. So we thought it might be fun to do that on this podcast together. So this is our first time doing it and recording it and actually trying to keep our conversation on track. We're not going to do a very deep dive into the papers, but we are going to touch on a few elements that we personally found interesting. We would need hours to really tackle every aspect of each paper we go through. So I highly recommend that you read the study yourself if you find what we're discussing here interesting and also form your own opinions. On that note, today in Sex News, we are reading an article, research paper, I don't really know what to call it. It's called The Making of the Trafficking Problem. And it's a response to a study and it's by Ina Van... Alex, do you want to try and pronounce that since it's Dutch? Uh, Ina Van Wezenbeck. That's it's, it's, a, it's a Dutch woman, yep. Okay, October 2019. It's actually responding to something called the prostitution problem, claims, evidence, and policy outcomes from a paper from November 2018. So the earlier paper, the original paper, the one we're going to talk about is responding to, just to summarize it briefly for everyone, society thinks prostitution is bad, No one knows how to handle it. This paper discusses two different stances on inequality and prostitution. It examines the claims and how policy is formed in response to them, and then it determines which of them they think as the author is most effective. The first perspective is prostitution is an institution where men control women through exploitation. The second perspective is prostitution is exploited labor intersecting with multiple different social inequalities. 
And then the authors of the original paper conclude that the second perspective is better and policy should be developed to reduce the intersection of the different social inequalities that sex workers face so they can be included in society as equals and then say further studies required. They want more studies on it. The article we're discussing today is Ina Van Wessenbeck's response to those two perspectives. So the paper itself is divided into categories called sex workers on the move, anti-traffickers on the move. Sex workers on the move is migration and sex work. Anti-traffickers on the move is anti-trafficking movements and how they're increasing. Talks about the making of the trafficking problem, focuses specifically on unreliable data collection and then explanations around them. And just the media taking that unreliable data and also just making shit up. Uh, it talks about the Americanization of sexual politics. The American government dictates how sex work law works around the world. And then it talks about the workings of anti-trafficking politics and how they don't help, they harm. So Alex, I'm going to propose that we move through each section of Ina Van Wessenbeck's response and share our thoughts as we go. Uh, does that sound good to you? Yep, that sounds good to me. Okay, before we begin, I want to hear your thoughts on some things before we get into it, just on academia in general. So before I get into that, is there anything you want to share about the author or the journal itself? Yeah, so a, a common question people have is how do I know when an article is worth reading? How do I know when this particular paper or you know journal paper has scholarly credentials behind it. There's a few different things you can do. The very first thing you should do if you're reading a paper and you're trying to figure out if it's legit or not, Google the outlet that it was published in, right? So this- Like the journal? The journal it was published in, the conference it appeared at, whatever the case may be, right? So in this case, the journal that this article, that this, this paper is published in is Archives of Sexual Behavior, right? So you can Google that and there's a couple things you're looking for. First and foremost, you can you can Google the, the name of the journal along with the words impact factor. And that gives you an idea of how relevant that particular outlet is in that particular discipline. So it, impact factor, without getting into the math of how it's calculated, it's basically a measure Please of... Please don't. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't. It's, it's, it's simple, but we don't have to. It, impact factor is a measure of how many papers does this journal publish versus how many times are the papers published by this journal cited by other papers. The more it's cited, theoretically, yeah, the more reliable so it is? The, the more citable papers that a journal has, right, the, the more likely it is that that particular journal is seen as a reliable resource in that particular discipline. So some really rough numbers, a, a, an impact factor of three is considered good. An impact factor of one is considered average, though average doesn't necessarily mean acceptable. Most people have probably heard of the journal Nature, right? Very famous scientific publication. It has an impact factor of 40. He's saying this and looking at me because I'm um, like, no, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Well, nature has an impact factor of 40, which is phenomenal. This particular journal has an impact factor of three, which is good. So that's a good starting point. Okay. So we can trust, theoretically, we could trust the source of this particular. Yeah. The, it just means this journal is receiving more citations than it is publishing papers, which is a good thing. So I didn't present you with absolute trash is what we're saying. You weren't like, uh, what is this trash you've given me for this paper? No, it's so it, it, it passes the, the sniff test initially. So before we get into this paper into greater detail, some of the language that this paper uses, I feel like I read it and I'm like, oh, I think I know what that means. Contextually, it makes sense. Like neoliberal capitalist society was the first one that came up. But do I actually know what they're talking about? First of all, Alex, neoliberal capitalist society thoughts. Yeah, I had to Google that one too. 
anything with Neo in front of it just refers to the the following term as, as having a slightly different meaning than it would have had traditionally. Um, so like neoliberal. New liberals. Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it turns out like you Google it and you find a pretty straightforward definition. It's just liberalism with a focus on capitalism, like, like free markets, removing barriers to trade, things like that. So it's a capitalistic liberalism. Great. OK, so things that you potentially would need to have a background in a little bit of political science even to understand this one little bit. Yeah. Okay, yeah, fantastic. So no, I don't actually know what they're talking I mean, I'm joking. I want to add that like I'm not a complete and total idiot, but I am an average person reading a paper. And that's why we're talking about this now. Okay. And stuff like that you can Google right, and, okay. and, and move forward. Is the language, do you think the language in this paper is prohibitive or accessible to a layman? I did not find it prohibitive. I think it is accessible to a layman. But again, you, you may have to Google the odd thing. But it's easy to Google it versus people where you'd have to then have your own separate degree in order to understand what they're talking about. I would say so, yes. There's no jargon that is specific to a field, right? That is, it, it, there's no jargon for its own sake. Right. Jargon meaning words that are specifically to help have a conversation around specific things for this specific industry, right? Yeah. Like if I say that shirt is ruched. You're like, what the fuck does that mean? Ruching yeah. is technically jargon. I wouldn't for you. know how to spell that, let alone Google it. Okay, R-U-C-H-E-D. Now you know. So this paper not be prohibitive. You're saying this one would be accessible to a layman. And let's be honest, it was. I read it and I'm not in academia at all. I have my undergrad degree, but that's about it. But if a layman couldn't understand this paper or a layman can't understand the paper or they find themselves Googling too much, what is the point of an academic paper on this subject, on sex work? Why would we want to have an academic paper in social sciences on sex work? Yeah, so academic papers, right? And when you say an academic paper, it's something that's meant to be read by other academics. If it's published in a, in a research journal, it's an academic paper. It's, it's not really intended for consumption by the layperson. But then what's the point? of a paper for yeah, only so, academics if they're again, trying to do social sciences. The point is for other academics. And, you know, if one research group is trying to push a new theory, they don't have the time to spend, right, summarizing everything that came before that, right? They have to assume a certain knowledge barrier of entry. For example, if you're writing a, a paper in particle physics, you, you can't provide an entire textbook's worth of physics education every time you want to publish something new. So a certain level of knowledge has to be assumed. And that's how fields move forward. If academics are just talking amongst themselves, why do we care as the broader society? Academic papers, they don't inform public policy directly. But for example, politicians are going to have people in their administration, whatever, who kind of have their ear to the ground for stuff like this. And if they if they see, oh, these this group at this school is doing research on this topic, that's interesting, right? My boss might want to hear about that, they will invite the research group, the academic to come in and say, give a presentation to a politician, in, in which case they wouldn't present their journal paper, right? Because that's going to be impenetrable to the average politician. They would come up with what would be penetrable to the average politician. You know, they'd remove the jargon. They'd use they'd pare it down, right? Rather than a 14 page paper, they turn it into a 10 minute presentation. That so what I'm hearing is to penetrate the politicians, you need to they give have them to shorter content. Exactly. Shorter, smaller content. I'm usually pretty quick with responding to your innuendo. Nothing is coming to me in the moment. Apparently. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, um, maybe I'll think of something later on and it'll be a complete non sequitur 10 minutes from now. That's fine. All I'm saying is that penetrate your politicians with easy to digest small objects. Yeah. So I, just to summarize, like the research is not just for academics. They, they can take the research and present it in different ways. And that's how it 
is useful. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm, gonna, try, I'm trying I'm not like, to fall into <laughs> lecturer mode here. I'm trying not to take us too off course here. Okay, if someone's not in academia, we always tell people, do your own research, vet the source, you know, don't believe everything you read on the news. But if you're not in academia, and a lot of these articles are quoting academics, how could you actually do your own research? Like, I think this is why conspiracy theories are so popular. Something feels like it could be true. So you agree because you don't actually understand the background of the topic, or it's so hard to actually do your own research and find out if something is valid or not. Yeah. So how does how does the layperson do their d- own discern what's true? Do their own, so yeah. there's a couple principles that I operate on. It's pretty rare, even in mainstream media, that they outright lie to you or present well, falsehoods twist. as. Oh well, we'll talk well, about that but, later. But that's what I'm getting at. It's it's pretty rare they lie. It's I, I would say they're they're very often factual, but not truthful, right? That they'll present some fact and offer their interpretation for it while deliberately leaving out context. So. Anytime you're reading anything, you operate on that assumption. Ask the question, are they being factual? Maybe. Are they being truthful? Well, that's a much different question. Next thing, if you're reading, say, a mainstream media article, right, just, you know, whether it's an editorial or, uh, I don't know, what's the opposite of editorial? Something they've researched and it's on the main- A full-length article? A full-length article, yeah. Like, when they claim studies say X, Y, Z, do they link to the original study? Or do they yeah. Do, do they claim it without a link to it? If so, you can click it and read through it for yourself. Now, that that's going to be a lot more work. But if you're interested in knowing the truth, I mean, there's just no other option. Right. But then you have to look into the journal the original study was published in yeah. and the actual bias of the author behind the original study. Yeah. Because I, I do think that people forget that like science itself in the scientific process might be unbiased, but people are biased. So people yep. conducting studies bring their biases to it. Science is not unbiased. And in the social sciences, scientists are not unbiased. And in the social sciences, you're studying people, not things. And the the very thing you're studying is is very messy, right? If someone answers one way, they might have been in a good mood. When they're in a bad mood, they'll answer a survey question a different way. Yeah. Okay. Enough on the background of academia. We are going to actually talk about this specific paper now, the one that Ina van Wessenbeck is responding to. So the intro of the paper says the sex trade is complex and dynamic and we can't make fixed judgments about it. There should be more than two perspectives on sex work. And then uh, she goes on to say my aim is twofold. One, to radically offset the idea of the prostitution problem being fixed and stable. And two, to illustrate the determining role that repressive policies play in constituting prostitution as a problem in the first place. Specifically, I deal with the construction of the trafficking problem, a notion that seems to now have become the dominant narrative about migration of sex work and even about sex work overall. So Alex, you mentioned that there's something interesting here for you. Yeah. So the problem with trying to form public policy around sex work is that there's no one size fits all solution. Right. There's no meaningful generalization that we can make that encompasses all sex workers. And there's a few reasons for it. Number, I mean, number one, people are messy. Right. Everyone has different motivations. Everyone has different values and reasons for why they might get into the industry in the first place. Sex workers don't generalize easily, but people's reactions to sex work do generalize easily. For the majority of people, the reaction they have to hearing the term sex work and sex trafficking and the sex trade and the sex industry, that reaction can be generalized to an extent and it tends to be more negative. So, Well, yeah, because they've grouped sex trafficking in with all of those other words that you said when sex trafficking is separate from the sex industry and separate from consensual sex work. Consensual sex work and sex trafficking are not the same thing, but they're all lumped together in the public consciousness. 
Yeah, and so what what ends up happening is legislation and policy making happens around the way the general public reacts to the phenomena rather than the facts of the phenomena itself. So as this paper says, the prostitution problem is seen as a fixed and stable thing. Even as new technologies develop and sex workers are moving more and more online or with COVID happening, I mean, all of the different topics that Lady Pym and I talked over the past six weeks, I know you weren't there for that, Alex, but all of those other topics that's not fixed and stable. That's ever changing the way that the world is ever changing. But people just want to respond with a blanket one size fits all statement. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about academia, not as much about the paper. But on that note, we are actually going to take a short commercial break. And then when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into the paper itself. We are looking for sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring Sex News with Ray, please send us a DM on Instagram at Sex News with Ray or email us at sexnewswithray at gmail.com. And we're back. Okay, so we're going to talk about the section called Sex Workers on the Move. And then here's a few things that I found particularly interesting from it. Talks about how labor migration, labor migration, migration itself, not trafficking, labor migration has increased due to globalization and economic restructuring. And then it goes on to compare women in caregiving industries migrating as an alternative to labor situations in their birth countries. So, for example, women coming from the Philippines and ending up all in elder care in Canada, which is a thing that apparently happens. So that would be one example. They're not migrating because they're being trafficked. They're migrating for different working conditions that are different than what's at home. The market for sex work may be increasing, but sex work migration is a path to independence. And there's little evidence to support that women were coerced into sex work in their countries of origin, meaning they weren't coerced into sex work and then sold or coerced into sex work and then they moved and ended up in sex work. That's what this is sort of getting into. And then a direct quote, evidence disclaims stereotype that migrant sex workers are all uneducated and motivated by dire financial need. So the idea that migrant sex workers are framed as devoid of agency, vulnerable victims. And then it goes on to say men always get described as migrating. Women are trafficked. So another example is the migrant workers on the Mexican U.S. border. They're not described as trafficked, even though if you compare the way that they're being treated to the way sex trafficking victims are treated, it's very similar in terms of they're told, oh, come over, there will be work. And then they're not they're not given any legal documentation and they work for pennies. But that's not trafficking. That's just migrant workers that we need to be worried about taking our jobs. Yeah. The only difference seems to be the actual profession. Right. As opposed to right? well, if, if you're if you're migrating to be a day laborer versus versus being well, they're still, selling, trafficked, yeah. they're still selling their bodies just in a different way. My thought here was, does this go back to the patriarchal mindset that women need to be protected and are incapable of making choices for themselves and the stereotype sort of that women are protected, men are protectors, and just the stigmas around migrating in general, right? Men are protectors. Of course, they're going to use their bodies and get paid shit for that labor. That's what men do. They work on the farm. But women, we can't trust their agency when choosing to use their bodies in a different way. That's inherently immoral or they are inherently being trafficked. I think it goes back to patriarchy personally. And that's a hypothesis, right? So a question we could ask there to test that hypothesis, we, we refer to trafficking in the context of the sex industry. If women are coming across the border to work in the care industry, are they still being labeled as trafficked by, by the media, by politicians? No, they're labeled um, immigrants. Okay, so women coming across to do elder care or, well, elder care or is, house cleaning is, is a or, woman's role. 
that's what women are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to take care of the elderly and clean. Sure, but if, but but if it's a patriarchal thing to refer to them as traffic, I meant w- more, wouldn't the women coming in to to perform elder care also be labeled as traffic? But well, not, no, because they're coming in to do what the patriarchy deems as their correct role in society anyway. Okay, but my argument would be then that the term trafficked is used to refer specifically to the sex industry, and it's not necessarily being used to refer to women and not men. Does that make sense? That's fair. It's still, I still think that there's some sort of patriarchy at hand here. You can you can say that all you want. We both know that I still think there's well, patriarchy so in him. What, basically, what I'm trying to do here is say, is there another explanation, right? You should always look for an alternative explanation and then weigh it against your gut instinct, right? You might have this instinct that says, okay, this is why they do it. Is there another explanation, right? Okay, so what's your explanation? Explanation as to why, I mean, trafficking is attached to to sex work. Why, where the term term trafficking originates, I I couldn't tell you. But am I right in saying that the term trafficking in the legal sense is unique to, to sex work? No, they use it to describe other things and that's where statistics get it wrong and we can get into that later. But a lot of studies will take a statistic about trafficking and say, oh, all these people who are trafficked are actually sex trafficked. So that's not true. They don't just refer to trafficking with sex trafficking. In social parlance, to use your terms, we don't refer to the migrant workers on the U.S.-Mexico border as trafficked. We refer to them as migrant workers. We're not referring to these women as migrant workers. We're referring to them as sex trafficked. Okay, so the argument that is even though the women might be coming in to do something other than sex work, we still refer to the women. Coming no, in as... the idea is that as soon as sex is involved, all of a sudden people have to save them. Yes. and that, that's, Because women that... need to be protected, which is a patriarchal mindset. But no one is talking about migrant workers needing to be protected. Okay, in so, so there's some common. I agree with that completely. The, the idea of trafficking like that triggers men's protective instinct. Right. Yeah. So you had another thought, I think, on this section talking about migrant workers in general. Anytime... I come across someone who presumes to understand someone's motivations or presumes to know why they are partaking in a certain behavior, right? It, it, it strikes me as a, a bit of a white savior complex, right? Like, like migrant women coming into the country to perform sex work, they need us to save them. There's no possibility whatsoever that they are doing this voluntarily or of their own free will. You see what I mean? So it, it's, it's up to us to... Right. They're from this poor country. They were escaping. We need to... They came for a better life, but now they're not getting that. Or like they were kidnapped and... You know. Yeah. And that e- even if that were true in a majority of cases, right? I, I still don't think it's the right thing to assume. You have to operate on the assumption that people are making choices and then analyze those choices, you know, on a on a case by case kind of basis. Th- this is the problem with generalizing when it comes to sex work because so many people do engage in it voluntarily or of their own free will. But we make this assumption that they must be coerced and migrant women even more so. Right. And I think this paper is contending that that's not actually true. They are migrant workers, not trafficked, and that's different. Yeah, that is the thrust of that's what I took away from the paper anyway. All right. Should we move on to the next section? So anti-traffickers on the move. The part of it that I found interesting that I'm going to summarize here is interest in sex trafficking has increased. In the States, it would appear to be a coalition of conservative evangelical Christians, fundamentalist Islamists, abolitionist feminists, social activists, Hollywood celebrities and corporate officials devoting themselves with the war against trafficking, which many admit is a war against prostitution. Yeah. So my immediate thought after reading that, you know, corporations and media outlets, they go whichever way the wind is blowing. But it seems like an odd alliance between 
abolitionist feminists and say evangelical Christians or fundamentalist Muslims. It's a very interesting fact that these two groups that you would think have absolutely nothing in common, they find common ground on this particular issue. So that struck me. And, and the other thing that the paper does point out, I don't know if you're planning on bringing this up right after this, but what the paper points out is that the funding for this sort of abolitionist view on sex work tends to come largely from the evangelical right, at least in the US. So even though you have many different disparate groups that you'd be surprised they could agree on anything, right? They do agree on this issue. Where the money comes from, that's a lot more one-sided. Yeah. You also yesterday were waxing poetic about one particular quote that you thought was beautiful and melodic. Yes, yeah, so there's just it's it's a little bit apropos of nothing. But I there was a really cool sentence that I loved in this particular section. The rise of the social in which a newly empowered bourgeoisie felt qualified to rehabilitate inferiors. A newly empowered bourgeoisie felt qualified to rehabilitate inferiors. Right. I, I think that just that's a, a very elegant and beautiful way of phrasing the, the white savior complex that a lot of people commenting on the issue seem to have. I mean, I do think that one of the reasons I maybe say patriarchy versus white savior is also just that it's more than just white people who think that sex workers need to be saved. Yeah. And it's more than just men. Right. I guess it's a lot of things. So we're going to go on to the next section, the making of the trafficking problem. Anti-prostitution movement claims some of the following. Violence is omnipresent in prostitution. Customers and traffickers are evil. Sex workers lack agency. And then it talks about how the trafficking problem rejects the concept of benign migration for sex work. And then it goes into saying figures used as evidence are elastic and media outlets report their numbers as truth. So for those of you who do not know what any of that means, as mentioned in earlier episodes, the methodology to find these numbers is sus. Here's a few examples. The way sex workers share information with each other is being defined as trafficking. In a paper, they might use statistics on trafficking, and then they'll say sex trafficking. So let's say it's something like there's 10 people who are being trafficked, and only six of them are being sex trafficked. They'll go, 10 people are being sex trafficked. That's how they use that kind of data. And so the author says, I personally doubt the feasibility of decent comparative research as well as its usefulness. And, you know, can we even trust the research in these fields? Yeah. And I think I agree with the author here. Number one, people are messy. Number two, the area of sex work is is so loaded. It's really hard to avoid falling into a like an activist trap and, and stay detached and unbiased. People tend to have very strong opinions about sex work. The difficulty in engaging in that kind of research from that perspective alone is going to be daunting. And number two, any time it comes to conducting academic research involving people, there's a whole bunch of hurdles you have to jump through, right? You have to do your due diligence because you have human subjects, right? So there's all sorts of bureaucratic hoops you have to jump through to get permission to do that research in the first place. Those hoops are even higher when you are talking about people and sex, and the hoops become even higher still when you are talking about potentially trafficked people and sex, because now there are certain legal issues that come into play. So the research is very difficult to conduct in the first place. Right. But then you have people who are maybe unintentionally misquoting the research that's been conducted. So you'll have a paper that's not on all people being trafficked and they say sex trafficked and that's not even accurate. Yeah. And so this comes down to academics really shouldn't be making that mistake like journalists do because it's sloppy reporting. But I probably the bigger issue is there's the legal definitions that underpin all this are not adequate. They're not they don't make any distinction. Right. So if there's no legal distinction, why should journalists make any distinction? Yeah. 
They, and th- that, I say that with a with a sassy look well, on my well, face. Well, why should they? They absolutely should, but it, it gives them an excuse not to. Yeah. Okay, well, the other interesting fact here, other than just the idea that the research being quoted, you know, when you're re- seeing news reports on this, when the average person is reading about this, the numbers are being misquoted. But apparently, according to this study, enormous amounts of money are spent on efforts to prove sex trafficking and find victims, and the author implies that this money is a colossal waste. Yeah, so you, you can ask the question, do they know it's a waste? Is this author pointing out something that the, the politicians and the NGOs spending this money don't already know? I suspect she's not, right? I, I suspect the politicians pushing for this kind of work and advocacy know the underlying statistics. The reason they, they keep pushing it is because, again, combating sex trafficking is a political slam dunk. If you can get up on your pulpit and claim you are doing everything you can, you're giving a billion dollars to fight sex traffickers, everyone's going to clap their hands and cheer. So even though you're throwing the money away, in a sense, you're not. If you're a politician, you're, you're, that, that money is going towards winning over your constituency, right? Even if the research you're, you end up funding is not. Well, in this case, it's not even funding research. It's the article brings up specifically a hotline a hotline for people to call in tips for sex trafficking victims. And they said that the amount of calls that they actually got ended up being $7,000 per call was what was being poured into it. There was an interesting statistic that you found. Yeah. So an interesting statistic, the paper quotes, by the end of 2016, the value of grants awarded for trafficking amounted to double the money offered for lung cancer and 20 times greater than the funding for malnutrition, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. That is stunning. So why does sex trafficking get that much funding when things like lung cancer and malnutrition and malaria are responsible for the death and misery of far, far, far more people in the world? You know, we we have a term that we use, at least, you know, we use this term in computer science. I'm pretty sure they use it everywhere. It's so-called sexy topics. It's probably not a good term to use in the context of sex trafficking, but it, it refers to these research areas that are, well, they're sexy topics. They're low-hanging fruit. They're, they're, they're hip. They're trendy. You know, everyone wants to do research in that area. The odds of getting a paper published in this area is very, very high, right? Because everyone's talking about it. And it's for for politicians and and the people distributing money for research grants, trafficking is one of these low-hanging fruit topics. When people think of tuberculosis, I know it's a thing. I don't know what it's it is. It's a lung thing. Something you put children with your lungs. in an iron lung. Yeah, and you know, everyone is vaguely aware that malaria kills a lot of people, but not in North America where they think live. Where we have vaccinations. Yeah, and when like when I think of malnutrition, I, I think of World Vision commercials from the nineties. Yeah, right? like with for, the, for, the, for, the for starving kid in Africa with the distended belly. Yeah, and he just stares at the camera, and Sarah McLaughlin sings softly over him. Exactly, for a dollar a day, you can blah blah blah. But when you hear sex trafficking, like that produces a visceral, quick reaction in most people. Right. I mean, people care so much about sex trafficking and they always cared about sex trafficking, but we never looked at our own rape statistics at home or fixing what we can at home to keep people from being sexually exploited. They worry so much more about the, you know what I mean? Like it goes back to who's the perfect victim and what does a perfect victim look like? And while sex trafficking, of course, there's a perfect victim. This is someone who's been forced into doing sex, which is something that is only for a man and a woman to do after they're married. Morality politics right there. Yeah, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll let you have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we keeping score? Fine. If we're keeping score, listeners, I want you to know that he just described a statistic as stunning, but he never describes me as stunning. Just so you're aware. That's what my husband finds beautiful. I have, a, I have other pet words for you. Mm, okay. <laughs> You know what they are. (laughs) 
Okay. Any anything else you want on that, or should we move on to the Americanization of sexual politics? Yeah, let's let's go to that. Okay. You and I found very different parts of this section interesting. Do you, should I go first, or do you want to go first? You go ahead. Okay. Just sort of talking about should we be calling globalization Americanization? And it talks specifically about the global gag rule, which is a U.S. foreign policy that prohibits foreign NGOs that receive U.S. family planning funds from providing or advocating for abortion being reinstated by the Bush administration. So the GGR has ostensibly served as a barrier to a wide range of health services for women and girls globally. A few years later, Bush launched the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, one of the largest and most influential donor programs in this area that strongly promoted abstinence and was notably ineffective in serving sex workers, which of course wasn't their primary person to serve anyway, so that doesn't really matter. The Bush administration also cut funding for the United Nations Family Planning Association, a key source of financial assistance for reproductive health programs. These measures had disastrous consequences for the altogether vulnerable sexual and reproductive health infrastructure in many developing countries. So the idea here is that American purity politics and purity-based lawmaking goes and affects people in third world countries that they are theoretically trying to help. But when you cut access to family planning, you're then cutting access for these people ever being more than what they already are, right? It's not, oh, well, you can't do this if you fund abortions. It's like, okay, but where does birth control fit into that? They're cutting funding from things like birth control or or just women's doctors in all of these places that the money is going to. And let's be honest, women have some very particular health concerns that they need addressed, like breast cancer screening or things like endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Like all of these women health subjects, these women are done in disservice because American politics go, oh, well, you also will offer abortions. And they also, according to this, push abstinence-only education, which is ineffective. Yeah, I, I have to say I don't envy these NGOs having to make the t this decision because NGOs, they're always desperate for money. If there's a huge chunk of funding available from sort of the evangelical right in the U.S., but it comes with strings attached. They have to follow the right? strings. Do you take the money and do what good you can while having these strings attached to you? Or do you reject the money and not be able to do any good at all? Right. Do you do some good while neglecting other areas or do no good because you have no funding? Right. I just think that it was an interesting point talking about how when one powerful country's opinions on sex ed are influencing other countries across the world, like that's that's ridiculous, especially because it's an NGO. It's just an organization trying to do good unaffiliated with any government organization. So the fact that one government can then step in and say, great, but you need to teach what we think is correct. Yeah, Instead of what's if, based even in science. If ridiculous. you want the money. Yeah. They can always turn down the money, but it, but this they're they're yeah. they're they're trying to balance it, right? Yeah. So the only other thing that I found interesting here was this quote, the closer we look at the truth about trafficking, the more we find not women and children being saved from terrible fates, but powerful agencies claiming money and attention for themselves while the people they supposedly rescue are arrested, deported, and fall through society's cracks. So I had these two things kind of linked in terms of you have this organization that's saying, give us your money. We agree with your purity politics. We're going to save trafficked women. And what they do is they push forward an agenda that doesn't rescue trafficked women and in fact just continues to endanger them. Like sesta Foss is the one example, right? We're going to rescue trafficked women, but sesta Foss has only endangered women in sex work and endangered trafficking victims for the same reasons. You say, oh, look, we've done all this great thing to save women who are being trafficked and then there's no research on whether or not it's even working. And what research has been done shows no, no, it is not. But because their purity politics line up with what we think is right, okay, we'll keep funding them. So once again, it feels right, but it isn't. Yeah. And you can get into 
do they honestly believe they're doing good or, you know, how nefarious is it? Are, are they giving this money so that they can say they gave the money? Right. Or are they giving this money because they, they truly believe in, in the well, ethics the they're pushing? Well, the organization's pushing these ethics. Do they truly think they're doing good when all of the the papers that have come out actually analyzing their actions say, no, you are not? And yeah, this I mean, is that, what's actually effective? That's the danger when it comes to ideology, religious ideology in particular. You you you, you right. know what the truth is but and you don't. Ev evidence be damned, right? The evidence is wrong. And to clarify, you're not saying religious I ideology like the evangelical Christians pushing their agenda here. You mean anything that you believe in without evidence yeah, yeah, to back I, it up? Ideology need not refer to religion, yeah. Okay. I also think that even if we take the conversation away from sex work and back to something like sex ed, right? Abstinence-only education. The science behind that has shown that abstinence-only education does not work. But we don't want people having sex before marriage. Therefore, we're going to keep teaching it. It's very confusing, right? Yeah, so, that doesn't make any sense Right, because it's making choices out of your feelings, not out of what's actually true. Policymakers, please do your research. Get the scientists to come and summarize their research for you. And look into the credibility of the scientists that you talk to. Alex, what was the point that you found interesting from this section? Yeah, so in the Americanization of Sexual Politics section, Ray talks a lot about the NGOs, and I, I agree. There's another thing I found interesting where this section also, it, it talks not just about NGOs, but governments as well. Gover American like, governments like, influencing like, other governments. Yeah, and so what the, what the, what the paper says is, so I'll, I'll read from it here. U.S. abolitionists have demonstrably put in a lot of effort to insert their anti-prostitution framework into the international arena. Europe has certainly been targeted fiercely and with huge sums of money, and then there's a citation, right? So presumably that citation gives evidence that Europe has been targeted. Um, but then this next sentence, a leading role has been taken on by Sweden that has, as part of their ongoing nation branding, aggressively marketed its Swedish model of client criminalization as a feminist policy par excellence. So the paper seems to be suggesting that as a result of U.S. lobbying, the Swedish government is making policy on sex work in response to that. And that that's a very different claim from suggesting NGOs are accepting monies with money with strings attached. NGOs are desperate for funding. The governments of first world Western countries tend not to be. They've got an entire tax base. So I, I, I would question just how influenced the Swedish government actually felt by American lobbying. That is not an obvious conclusion to me. J just because American agencies and organizations may have lobbied European governments, I don't think the paper makes the connection that, okay, that lobbying actually resulted in policy being made particularly in Sweden, because Sweden's a country that has, you know, has, has arguably gone further than any other country on the planet when it comes to instituting progressive and feminist policies as, as part of their public policy. Why would we simply accept that because American organizations are lobbying Sweden, that that directly impacted their, the, the, the Swedish model, as we say, right? Is there another explanation for this? Maybe attitudes on sex trafficking and sex work don't quite divide as cleanly as we think they do, right, on the sort of the American evangelical right and the progressive left. Well, I mean, right. rad femmes are considered. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where I'm that's where I'm going with this. And they're, right? Yeah, they're sex, they're sex worker exclusive feminists a lot of the time. Is it also possible that a lot of the feminist policymakers in Sweden are they tend to be of an older generation, right? They're of the second wave. And that means they probably have less progressive views when it comes to sex work, right? You mentioned radical, you know, rad femmes. 
Um, so that that's just a question I would ask. It's not obvious to me that that U.S. policy is to blame. There there could be another explanation there, especially at the level of first world governments, right? NGOs, it's easy to see they're desperate for money. After that, the paper just goes into the conclusion, which I think I already misappropriated one quote from the conclusion to the earlier section. But my only last thought and opinion here. Oh, one other thing it mentions is that when we look at trafficking and when we look at the way that the money is being used and how people are being, quote unquote, saved, the people who are actually hit the hardest are the migrant women who are the ones that they're supposed to be saving the most. Migrant women are always hit the hardest. It seems like puritanical opinions around men's and women's gender roles are influencing the way we see sex workers because any other form of migrant labor is seen as conforming to those gender roles. We talked about this already, but I, I get the sense here that it's very much about we need to save these poor women from having their bodies used. Yeah. And, and what, how can we how can we make public, you know, same thing as you were saying, like, oh, well, yes, that seems terrible. Poor women being shipped in just to be used for sex. That's terrible. But that's not the full story. Yeah. And it just it, it seems like a lot of these policies end up getting used as political cudgels. Right. They're talking points that that sound good to their constituents. But the people who are actually trafficked because the policymakers are disingenuous in the way these these policies are being framed and implemented. The people who are actually being trafficked aren't helped in the least. Right. That level of thought didn't actually go into the policy. It's just a feel good, sound good kind of thing. Right. Because if we actually cared about trafficked workers, we'd be working on getting the migrant workers in Mexico or the Mexican migrant workers in the States. We'd be working on getting them actual legal rights in America. Yeah. And it, so I say we as a Canadian. Yeah. It, it's So it's not helping the people who are actually being exploited, nor is it doing anything good for the people who are making these choices of their own free will. Right. It, basically, the policy says, no, nope, this is not a choice you have made. You are being trafficked, even if. You yeah. Don't and know OK, so you're being trafficked. And by the way, we're not actually going to help you and you're being trafficked and you're going to prison because in a lot of these places where these are the, the policies, like in the States, you'll go to prison for doing sex work, which means that if you're being trafficked, you're getting arrested and sent to prison. So now you're a migrant worker who's also got a record. They claim to want to help you. And this is the policies that they're enforcing to try and end trafficking. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do want to help. It's just they they tend to be swimming upstream and going against the grain. It's Yeah. Any last thoughts on the paper overall? Yeah, on the paper overall, I, I think it is accessible. I think it's a good read for the layperson. You might have to Google a few things. It, it's relatively short. It's six or seven pages. So if, you, if you're not looking for a complete slog, you'll find it in this paper. I did a bit of background research on the author. She's been writing and publishing for decades upon decades. So yeah, I think you can take this one to the bank. I thought this paper was fun to read. I thought it proposed some interesting perspectives on migration in general and the way we discuss it in regards to sex work. And I, I had fun reading this one. I don't know if you enjoyed. Um, did it, you find enjoyment in the act of reading this paper? No, I, I didn't. Like, oh, that's <laughs> interesting. Oh, that's interesting, too. I, I won't say I found it fun because this is this is not my wheelhouse at all. But I found it stimulating. I, I learned something. Alex enjoys being stimulated on sexy topics like sex trafficking. I was not titillated by the paper. <laughs> I was stimulated. OK. <laughs> being very careful with your words there before you get canceled. I'm very diplomatic. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next week with another paper. We're only doing three of these, so if this was not interesting to you, check back with us in a few weeks. But I think this is very fascinating. Alex, where can people find you? You can't find me, don't try. Perfect. You can follow the podcast at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram. Submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. 
You can follow me at Wife Bay Ray on Instagram and TikTok and Razor Latex on Instagram OnlyFans and for now Patreon. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. Theme music is by Blank and Brilliant and a special thank you to Blue Microphones. Photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. 